The scripture reading today comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of the Lord that I didn't run or labor for nothing, But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this call, this call for us to rejoice uh, in the things that are true about you. Father, it's difficult uh, to be able to do that if we don't know, if we don't think the things that are true about you. Father, there are things that we think, things that we hold to at times that are in conflict with what is true. And so, God, I pray that you would meet us now, not only in what we feel are true about you or what we think are true about you. Will you reveal what is indeed true about you and the things that we think that need to be released? Allow us to release that the things that we need to cling to and hold to about you. Give us the confidence to hold to those things. God, we don't, we don't ultimately want to, to, to be the author of our own faith. You have promised to be that. So God, be that for us today through the power of your word, through the working of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in idols and we're almost done, but this almost is kind of a setup for uh, the next two weeks after this. We're going to be talking about relationships specifically about how our own idolatry gets in the way of how we connect to God and connect to each other. This idea that, and we've been talking about several versions of idols that get in the way of that, right? There are certain things that we exalt more highly than we do God, things that we exalt more highly than his attributes, things that we exalt more highly than the things that are true about him. 
And in so doing, we end up creating our own little idols, and we start worshiping that. We start protecting that. We start providing for that. We start prioritizing that. And so in that, uh, we, 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 we need to kind of ask the question, how do we view ourselves? I mean, ultimately, every single idol we've been addressing has really, at the end of the day, just boiled down to we're really good at self-worshiping. Every single idol that we've identified, it doesn't exist outside of something you believe about yourself and about God. So, so maybe a better question is this. What makes you you? What, what makes you you? The, whatever it is for you to be authentically you. We love that word being authentic, and I'm going to touch on that. But whatever it means for you to be authentically you, what makes, what makes you that? Now, there, there are, uh, right now, it's, it's easy for us to kind of fall into or, or uh, boil down human nature. If we were going to do it and reduce it to three things, it's pretty common amongst most kind of modern Western philosophers, psychologists, will typically say we're broken down into both the mental, the emotional, and kind of the physical or the volitional, right? We've got kind of what we think, what I feel, and what I do. Now, is it, is it just what you feel that makes you you? Is it just what you do that makes you you? Or is it just what you think that makes you you? Now, most folks today would say, well, they're integrated, right? On, on some level, if you've got the mental part, you've got the emotional part, you've got the kind of the action, the physical part. But, but which one actually has the greater impact? You see, ultimately, we'd have to decide. Matter of fact, throughout history, people have kind of debated this over and over again because all of them can affect each other. What you do could affect how you feel about a thing. What, you, what someone else does or what you do could affect what you think about a thing and, and vice versa. But what I hope to show, and I think what history shows and what the scriptures show, is that while they all can affect each other, what you think has a greater impact on the other two. Always. What you think has a greater impact on how you feel and what you do. Not only that, but it'll also have an impact on how you feel and how you do. What you think, right? So, so, so right thinking will lead to right feeling and right acting or doing. False thinking will lead to false feeling and false ways in which we behave or comport ourselves. Now, what happens then when you, when you, when you consider uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, right, one of the uh, uh, old philosophers uh, in Boston back in the 1800s, and he put it this way. He said, you are what you think all day long. You are what you think all day long. A couple, couple centuries before, John Locke, old philosopher, put it this way. He said, uh, humankind is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing in different times and places. It's fun philosophy talk now. But, but what he's ultimately saying is that in order for you, it's not enough to just say, I am human and I am me because I think or I have intellectual abilities because there are things that aren't, that aren't necessarily human that have intellectual abilities, right? So there's got to be something else beyond just that. And so one of the things he said, he said that ultimately, according to this definition, you're a person because you can think about yourself in the past, 
You can think about yourself in the future, and you can think about yourself in conditional spaces. In other words, you can say, in February, I might go on vacation to India, or last summer, I went on holiday to Florida, or last month, I could have won the lottery if I'd only bought a ticket. These are all conditional things. You have the ability to do that. This is a part of what it means to be human. So, so, so there's no question that you are what you think. You are how you think. And beyond just what philosophers have to say or what uh, uh, psychologists have to say, God says as much throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 23, 7, for as a man thinks, think about this. In other words, as he thinks or her, as she thinks about herself, he or she is. The way you think about yourself actually defines, this is a part of your identity. How you think about yourself impacts everything. And you see, the reason this can be hard for us is the the ancient world didn't separate the head and the heart the way we do. See, now it's very common to be like, well, you know, that's that's what you say, but that's, that's in your head. But on a heart level, what about this? The ancient world didn't separate that that way. We do that now as good Western modernists. This is what we do. We, we separate the two. And you know we do because ultimately we could say, if I, I don't want to believe that they're integrated at times because at times when my, if, my, if my head fails me, I don't want you to think that's all of me. So if I, if I make a mistake, what would I say? Charge it to my head and not my heart because I don't want those to be too integrated because I have to actually be more responsible if they are. But the truth of the matter is that they've always been integrated. And the only times when, it's interesting because while we don't always integrate, we disintegrate those three things all the time, but, but, but sometimes we still connect them, right? If I, if I commit something to memory, I say, I know it by, right? Because the, the, throughout the scriptures and throughout history, the mind and the heart often are interchangeable throughout Scripture. In other words, in the the Old Testament, or in in the ancient times, both Old and New Testament, when you talked about the head and the heart, the idea was this. The heart was the sum total of all those things. Your thinking, your feeling, and your acting. So a lot of times, how is it possible then? Think about how, how God talks about it. Instead of separating everything in, remember in Genesis 6, When God starts talking about who we are, remember this, before you ever define who you are, let God do the defining. Before you ever start thinking, well, no, this is now going to be authentically me, and this is how I authentically feel, and this is what I now think is right for myself. Let God do the defining first, then live into that. But here's what God said. Genesis 6, right out of the beginning, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Thinking and heart? I mean, how is that, how is that possible? Well, this was, it was common to be able to speak and think in this way. Jesus confirmed the connection between our hearts and our minds, which in turn affects our actions. In Matthew 15, 19, he said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Murder began as a thought before it became an act. The head and the heart, always connected. Lots of good theories as to when one begins and when one ends, we don't even need to get into that. The fact is, they, they stay connected. We ought not disintegrate the two or the three. Humans act out the condition of their hearts through their deeds. We 
are what we think. We become what we think. That's, that's who we are. So we're ultimately, if we are ultimately what we think, then how we think about ourselves, our idea of self, our ego, impacts what we feel and it impacts what we do. The way we think about ourselves can go from being, it's, it's nothing wrong with having a healthy view of yourself and just as, as uh, Krista just preached to us in that prayer, uh, when, when, you, when you think through just how easy it is to either exalt yourself too highly or put yourself down too lowly, that, that is very, very unhealthy. But what, ha- what happens when you exalt yourself too highly? Because I think all of us do this. Now, we don't always know that we do it because sometimes it's much more demonstrative for some. So you can tell when somebody really feels themselves. But I'm going to show there's a lot of ways that we all tend to think of ourselves way too highly. And here's the thing. We tend to respect what we think. We respect how we think way too highly. You see, one of the things that you got to remember, and, and something we see throughout the scripture, but I think we often forget, is that when we talk about what sin did to creation. We do a good job of talking about, you know, sin has affected creation. Things don't function the way they're meant to. Uh, There are things that happen that occur even in nature that are really hard and really bad and really sad. And we see that as an effect, effect of how sin has not only affected everything, but it has infected everything, right? We, we'll say we believe that, but how, how far does that go? Do you believe that sin affects the way your brain thinks? Does sin affect the way we process things? Does sin affect the way we uh, understand each other? Can sin affect the way we understand God? Now, we might say yes, but we definitely don't act that way. We act like the way we think is somehow an authority for us. It's like, no, I, the way I think, I've, I've reasoned this out, this out well, and this is even if I see something that God says is one thing, I still think this. You see, trusting in your head, heart, alone is incredibly dangerous, and it actually can't be trusted alone. There's a, a list I came across, talked about the top 10 things that happen, or the top 10 reasons why you ought not just trust your mind alone. Here, here, here are the 10. Number one, the mind jumps to conclusions. Can I get an Amen. <laughs> The mind jumps to conclusions, and what that simply means is the mind loves to solve problems. We love to solve problems, and we love it so much that we want to accept the solution that presents itself most quickly. Whatever, the, whatever solution seems the most logical and quick, I just want that. Why? Because I don't want to do the work of looking for any alternate possibilities. So, so my mind immediately it wants to jump to conclusions. The second thing, the mind sees what it wants to see. You see, for all of us, we struggle with something that today we have a word for. They didn't use this word in that way back then. It's called biases, implicit biases, and we all have them. I've never seen this interesting now that people actually hate. There are people who hate this kind of conversation, and it shocks me when Christians hate this kind of conversation, because if you say you believe that everything has been affected, including the mind, we should be the first people to say, well, biases are biblical. Not that they're good, but biases themselves, acknowledging biases, are very biblical. The same way you can acknowledge whatever propensity you have to sin in any other area. The the propensity we have to immediately start to prefer a thing over another, and so that impacts how we see things. It impacts what we start assuming. 
that should automatically, we should have no problem. There should be no fight against that. As believers, we should say, that sounds consistent with what sin does. But the reason why we struggle with it is because I don't want to believe that there's more work that I have to do. If I have to believe that sin has affected me on that deep of a granular level, that I could actually have biases of which I am not aware, that sounds like way too much work. Work that I've, I've actually got to, because here's the thing, in order for you to know where your biases are, you got to be around people. I never trust anybody that says, I've checked myself, I'm sure I don't have any now. Or I never trust anybody that says, I've done the work and, and so I, I see where most of my biases are. That's not trustworthy. It's trustworthy when you're amongst people that you love and you care, care for you, and they can actually help you point that out at times and things in just conversation and just living amongst each other, working amongst each other, spending time. And then things come up, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, yeah, that, that, that might be a bias, that might be a blind spot that I have. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Next thing, uh, the brain, the mind ignores the obvious ignores the obvious. We know that drinking and driving can be fatal, and yet people will do it and think, I'm good. It's obvious what can happen. We've seen it over and over and over again, and yet in the moment, we trust what we think. We know that texting and driving, guilty. We know that texting and driving, very dangerous, and yet... We think we got it. See, the brain does, this is our natural way of functioning. We can know something is dangerous and know something is not right and know something is, is scary and could be deadly, but we trust ourselves more. The other thing that this is something that I know will be, could be a, a little bit tough for folks to hear. The brain is naturally not suited for multitasking. I see like seven people that want to argue. <clears throat> so scientists have actually borne this out. I remember seeing this about four or five years ago. They've borne this out. When they, what, what we think we're doing when we multitask is actually what scientists call split tasking. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't function, and even at a high level, but you, every, by the way, the way that the brain works, you are actually still pulling away from one thing in order to do a thing over here. You're never giving. Even though you think you're giving 100% to a thing, you never are. You're just splitting the brain's resources to do all those things. And you still may be able to do them at a high level. It's not saying that you can't. But the brain doesn't multitask well, as well as it ought. Because we, we actually can't just keep, we're not giving all of our thing into one direction. So, so there's, you can't necessarily trust that if you're multitasking that you've done everything as well as you think you could have. You might convince, no, I did it. I spent three hours doing that. Yeah, while doing seven other things. Six, the brain constantly makes stuff up. Y'all don't break stuff up? The brain constantly, what do I mean by that? Here's what, you're, here's what our brains want to do. When there are blanks, the brain is good at filling them in. When there's something that you, you, you have this bit of information, but there's a glaring gap over here, your brain will just fill it in. Fill it in. Well, it's, prob it's probably this. I heard him say this last year. I bet that's what it is now. And we start filling in, filling in, filling in. Why? 
Ultimately, it's because I trust my brain enough to fill in things I don't know. I trust my brain so much that I'm, I'm sure that if it's got to just do a little bit of uh, Mad Lib, my Mad Lib's going to be better than yours. Number seven, the brain avoids threats or conflict rather than pursuing opportunities to make healy, uh, healthy. So, so in other words, the brain will like avoid, if there's a, a potential conflict or potential pain, the brain will naturally just avoid it. In many ways, there's exceptions to this, but in general, we, we, we will be more conflict-averse. And here's the thing. Some people will be like, nope, not me. I love going into conflict. I love going right in, straight in. I eat problems for breakfast. <laughs> I've heard that many, many times. Eat problems for breakfast. But the, pro- the problem is that that person still avoids conflict, but here's the deal. They, they don't want to actually have to face themselves. So they love conflict, when they get to be the ones who are determining how the conflict should be handled. But if they are the source of the conflict, they don't run to that. Because we all are conflict-averse on some level. I don't want, why would I want to go in a situation where all of my problems are going to be undressed? Why would I want to go into a situation where these glaring holes in my own character might be on display? I don't want that. But if I can commandeer it, and then all of a sudden, I'm the one that's curating the conversation. Oh, I love conflict then. The brain is naturally conflict-averse. Number eight, the brain sticks with the known. Things that are familiar, we'll skew that way. Number nine, the brain assumes others sees the world in the same way it does. Which means that if people aren't seeing it the way that I'm seeing it, something must be wrong with them. Because if they had the mind that I have, they would see it the right way. And then number 10, too much confidence in its own abilities. Too much confidence in its own abilities. You see, ultimately what we're talking about right now, theologians call it the noetic effects of the fall. It's another word that simply means knowledge or knowing. How we know a thing, how we understand things have been in. infected by the fall. How you think you know a thing is always flawed. It can always be flawed on some level, which means we need something else to constantly be checking it. Albert Einstein put it this way. Two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. (laughs) The mind we have is bound by sin. The mind we have needs to be freed. It cannot be trusted. The mind and heart, the way it's connected, right? Jeremiah said, the heart, right? This, this idea of a part of the heart is where we're thinking. The heart is desperately wicked, wicked of all, above all things. Who can know it? So, so on some level, we have to go, you know, even if I think it, even if I feel it, I really got to make sure it stays uh, uh, in subjection to something else. Because this can't be trusted by itself. Now, why am I saying this? Because culturally, we are told that you actually should be able to exalt in who you are in that, in that way. I, I, I read something. Somebody said, here are things you should never apologize for. Never apologize. Now, hear what I'm saying because I know this is going to hit some of y'all. Never apologize for who you are. Never be sorry for who you are. Is that biblical? 
Is that godly? Is that even humility? Now, again, this is not to say that never be honest and never stop showing up as who you are, but remain humble in that the way that I show up, some things might be exposed in some, in some aspects of who I am that still need to be changed. Now, if you're done being sanctified, God is done with you, then great. You can just be revel in who you are because God is done. It's probably time for you to go. But if you can't say that, then you ought not ever let those words come out of your mouth. I can't apologize because this is just who I am. I can't apologize because this is just how I feel. I can't apologize because this is what I think. You know what that's saying? That's saying that my authenticity is a higher priority to me than transformation. Who told you that authenticity is an authority? Who who gave us this idea? That as long as, I, as long as I'm authentic, again, authenticity, not bad, but as long as I'm authentic, I can hide behind my authenticity even if I'm authentically sinful, even if I'm authentically horrible, even if I'm authentically unloving, I can do that because at least I was real and honest and I didn't hide it. Where did we get that? See, that's the idol of self. That's me loving and worshiping myself so much that even if there are things within me that are problematic, I don't have anything to say about that. I I should never have to change that. Why? Because the constant, the one thing that ought never change is me. Everything else should change. Maybe my behavior can change. But on a deeper level, the mind-heart stuff, I I should never have to apologize for that. And see, this is where Philippians kind of hits us. This is where Philippians meets us. This is where Paul is talking to this group of folks who have dealt with incredible division already. And there's lots of things that's been preached there. Uh, Other folks have been preaching to the church at Philippi, this church that uh, Paul helped plant and people that he discipled are leading the church there. People are preaching and teaching things, making them question Paul's authority to speak to certain things, causing all kinds of divisions that are there. People kind of focusing on what they think versus what what God has already uh, declared. And then when you look at how Paul has to approach them, this is why. When you see the things that he is kind of hitting on, right? Why is he he trying to to, to get to this place of, hey, y'all, y'all need to understand what it means to be unified, what it means to be one what it means to actually be connected well, what it means to not be backbiting, coming after each other, and being uh, 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 in a state of disunity. Verse 1, he says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I'm sorry, in in, uh, chapter 2, he says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one's purpose. Now, this is very personal. It's very personal. Paul is heartbroken that this church he helps uh, help plant, these folks that many of them that he helped disciple, he's heartbroken to see just how divided they are now. And he's, when he says, this is a very personal statement when he's like, listen, if you guys can do anything, if there's just any, it, to the degree that you guys are holding on to Jesus on any level, make my joy complete by being united, by being unified. Now keep in mind, this idea of being united is not the same as uniformity. But there's a sense of like, we are all in the same, we are all going in the same direction. We are all holding to the same things that are true. We are all committed 
on a certain level in hum humility to each other. And then he, then, he, then he, he moves forward and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Before I finish that, that's, that's the, where I want to camp for a minute. He's having to talk to folks and say, don't do anything out of selfish ambition and don't do anything out of conceit. Why is he saying this? Because we often do things out of selfish ambition and we often do things out of conceit. You know, when you have a high mind of yourself, you have a high view of yourself, you never see yourself as someone who does things out of selfish ambition. You rarely do. And I, or you, you rarely will see. And you know why? Because typically when you're in the, you might be able to do it retrospectively. You might be able to look back in the past and go, I was really selfish back then. Or I was really conceited back then. But how often in the moment are we going, I am so full of selfish ambition right now. How often are we in the moment going, I'm so full of conceit right now. So if we're not able to do that, then when we are in disagreements with one another, we have no chance of actually being united, do we? Because as we move into humility in a minute, here's the thing. Ultimately, what real tr here's what trust looks like, okay? Here's what trust looks like when you're in relationships with one another. Trust says, I have, I, I trust you because of what I have been able to witness in you, uh, what it looks like for you to actually regularly humble yourself. If I see that, if I know, if I feel confident that, that this person here is one that is, is, is ready and willing to humble themselves. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're going to be a person that will never hurt you. It doesn't mean that this is a person that will never let you down. But ultimately, because you can't promise me that. I say this for couples, premarital counseling all the time. You can't promise that you won't hurt the person. Now, there are certain things, levels to this for sure. But, but you can't promise, I'll, I'll never let you down. I'll never disappoint you. I'll never hurt you. I tell couples all the time, the one thing you ought not do is look for this person to fulfill something only Jesus can. Can't do that. But what I should be able to commit to you is, I commit to having a regular rhythm of repentance, and I commit to having a regular rhythm of humility. You see, if I know that, it's not that you're not going to let me down. What I have to know is that if and when this person fails or hurts or does something that lets me down, I have a high confidence that they will come back in humility. If I can't say that, then I can't trust them. Which is why Paul tells, tells them that the antidote to this is humility. But think about this. The two things he mentions, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, don't do anything out of conceit. Selfish ambition. In the Greek is this idea, this feeling of resentfulness based on jealousy. It implies rivalry, exalting self. It comes from the word that we would use to describe kind of a day laborer, somebody who every day, this is the job that I do in order to exalt self. You see, there are times where you can be in relationship with one another, but ultimately there's still this rivalry. Now, a lot of times in church, what that looks like is who gets to have the moral high ground? Who gets to have the moral high ground? So if, 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 uh, if, you, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I think you, 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 may have, you, you offended me here, or I'm hurt by something you did or said, really the first threat is, no, no, I, I, I need to make sure that I don't lose the moral high ground. So, so what I'll probably say is, no, you don't understand. Um, uh, I, I, that, that wasn't what I intended. I, I didn't intend for that to happen. As opposed to dealing with the impact, you realize it's hard to trust somebody who hides, right? They hide from negative impact behind really good intention. 
These negative impacts are still present, and they've caused some real damage. Oh, but because you didn't intend for it to land that way, that's where you're coming first? That's your first go-to? I didn't intend. Oh, I didn't intend, I didn't intend to run my bulldozer into your $2 million house. That wasn't my intent, so good luck. I'll be praying for you and walk off. Or I realized that my own preoccupation with whatever it is that I was doing caused me not to pay attention to where your house was, and I bulldozed it, and now I realize the impact that has on you. You've got to figure out how to pay for this again. You've got to figure out where you're going to live right now. You've got to figure out how to replace all of the valuables. I am so sorry. Before you ever mention intent, you focus on impact, because that's what it means to love somebody. But here's the problem. I don't want to believe that I'm that person. So I have to start with intent first because I don't want to, in in many ways, there's this rivalry of I don't want to be the one that actually is the lower one in the moral battle right now. I don't want to believe that. So we start coming out with all of these explanations. Well, no, you didn't understand. Like, you know, honestly, who put that bulldozer there anyway? And we start kind of finding new ways to kind of wiggle our way out of being responsible. So he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. This idea of this rivalry of of measuring ourselves against each other. Then he says, don't do anything out of conceit. This word in the Greek really hit me hard. Because what this word specifically is, is, is getting at is this state of pride, which is without basis or justification. An empty pride, a a cheap pride, a vain pride. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like for us to actually be conceited in that way? There's this idea that I trust in how I think about a thing, my, my attitude, my wiring. I trust in that so much I actually place confidence in that. See, that's what happens when somebody comes and says, uh, when somebody says, hey, this hurt me, and then you respond with, well, you know, that, I'm sorry if that hurt you, but this is just me, so you just got to deal with it. What that's saying is, it doesn't look like conceit on the front, right, because you're not saying I'm so great, but you're functioning like I'm so great, because what you're saying is, uh, even though this thing hurt you, my view of myself, my authenticity, takes precedent over what it is that causes damage to you. And because of that, I actually owe you no apology. Because of, so you see, it's not like you're trusting in something God has said to justify it. Because there is no justification for it. It's empty justification. But you have incredible confidence. See, that's, this, that's really scary when we place our confidence in self versus confidence in God. And so now when Paul is talking to these folks saying, um, be very careful not to fall into this place of like these rivalries and dissensions. And then on top of that, don't fall into this place of, well... You know, honestly, I just have a sense of pride in who I am so much that whatever else you're saying to me, it, it, it's, I'm nonplussed by it. I'm not impacted. I'm not affected by it. Now, if we function that way, our relationship with God is already being shot. It's already hurt. We're already creating distance. But our relationship with each other is also creating incredible distance. The reason why we can't trust one another is because we don't see what it looks like to be humble. That's Paul's response, right? So if you've got selfish ambition, we've got conceit, how do we respond? Well, this is when it gets really powerful. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. You can't do this if you have this inflated view of yourself. 
You can't do this if you think that your authenticity without any transformation is enough to place your pride in. Because you'll never value, you'll never consider others as higher. Your authenticity is higher. Being real is higher. Not changing yourself is higher. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, here's, what, here's some, some ways that we can do that. When there are situations where people are hurting, or people are grieving, or people are uh, sharing some things that are problematic, doesn't always mean that everything that they're sharing is accurate. We get that. But the first place, what stops us from going right to the place where they're mourning first? What stops us from doing that? Here's how you know that you're not humble. Here's how. Here's how I know I'm not humble. Because the moment somebody comes and says, uh, this, is a, this is a problem, this is something that hurts, the first go-to is, yeah, but are you sure that's accurate? Are you sure that you're really feeling that? Again, this is not to say that the person, we'll talk about the person in a minute because humility has to be for the one who feels like they've been hurt. There's humility needed there too. But if someone's coming to you and going, hey, this right here is hurtful. This has actually caused damage. What stops you from just stopping and going, okay, let me see where I could have been, where, where I could actually be complicit here. You know what stops us from doing that? Because we actually think of ourselves as too high. We think of ourselves as too highly. We, we think of ourselves as uh, almost above that. So we're like, you know, I'll pacify you. I'll let you get your little complaints out. And then as soon as you're done, I'm just going to destroy everything you just said and explain to you why you're really not hurt and it's all in your head. That's actually not humility. And it has nothing to do with who's right or who's wrong. There's a heart posture that has to be taken regardless of who's right or who's wrong. See, a person who's not humble wants to win the argument, not the other person. The person who's not humble just wants to make sure they get to be the right. Why? Because if I'm wrong, I don't have the moral high ground. If I'm wrong, I've got work to do. And I don't want to have to do that. But the same goes for those who have been wronged. If we're wrong, here's the scary thing about if you've ever been wronged. If you've been wronged and you, let's say for argument's sake that there's no question, objectively, you have been wronged. Something has happened, whether individually or systemically, all kinds of conversations. Let's say that's the case. On some level, having been wronged makes you feel like you now have the moral high ground. And you see, that's not actually humility either. Because then many people who have been a victim of anything can often feel like there's no more work for them to do because they've been hurt. And no one actually helped heal them, so they have no more work to do. That's not humble either. That's not humility. See, humility is not even rooted in who's the right one and who's the wrong one. Humility has to be rooted in where Paul takes us. Humility has to be rooted in Jesus. Humility can't be rooted. It's not like, well, if I'm the wrong one, then i got to be humble. But if I'm right, I can say whatever I want to you, and you just got to take it. See, that, that is, that's actually really dangerous because that's where you know I'm still exalting myself. I'm still self-absorbed. I'm still self-worshipping. 
And so Paul, Paul realizes this. That's the reason why he doesn't say, okay, listen, find out which one's right and wrong first, and then that's the person that has to be humble. He doesn't do that. He says, it's interesting. He actually uses an example that we can never actually feel if you think about it. He says, adopt the same mind or the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Then he starts to qualify his argument. He says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Think about this. See, you can't get more right than being God. You can't be more on the side of moral high ground than being God. So Jesus actually gives us this picture of someone who actually has no reason to be humble because he has no possibility of being wrong. And then Paul says, and that's what you need to emulate. And here's what's hard about this. Paul is in many ways going, I'm going to use this standard of perfection and say, hey, here's an example of somebody that never did anything wrong and they still humbled themselves. Now I'm going to talk about you. Jesus had no possibility of being wrong. You got a high probability of being wrong. See, that's what humility says. Humility says, regardless of what is here right now, maybe the fact, whatever the facts are right now, I know that there's still in my nature, there's a high probability that I could be wrong. So we say it because it's become almost like a cliche here, but this is what we mean when we say humility says, I would not put this past me. The reason why we struggle in relationships with each other, the reasons why we struggle in conversations about individual sin and systemic sin is because people don't want to believe that that could be present in them. I don't want to believe that I could be guilty of that. It's why when we look at things in the past, we act as if there were aliens in the past. Like they didn't have the same nature we do now. Well, you know, that was just a, you know, specifically Christians in the past. Well, that, that, they were just a product of their time. Either the Holy Spirit is consistent or he isn't. And if the Holy Spirit, if God's heart was grieved then and people still weren't saying the things they should be saying, should we not be going, hey, there's a problem? There? Well, no, they were a product of their time. You just can't, you can't judge them that way. We said this before. This is why we have to be very careful. Uh, in our church, we've made a real point to not get into, caught up in like age and stage groups. And I get it. Some of y'all would love it. And I, it's great. It's not that it's bad. We're a small church. And we want to make sure that people are in relationship with people at different stages of life. I actually believe in, in when I'm talking to college students around the area so often, many of these college students, if they've been raised in church, they've been in youth group together. They've been in college ministry together. They go to church and they're in young Marys or young adults ministry together. They have no idea how to interact with people of different generations. They have no idea how to interact and actually form real community cross-generationally. And it hurts everybody. Because it's not like old, some of the older people are like clamoring to hang out with 12-year-olds. But here's what, here's what this does. What we do is, and this is where we, we remove the opportunity for people to be humble. Because what we'll say is, you know what, I'll just give you this personal story. I had a situation, I was preaching or teaching at this church one time. And at this church, it was a predominantly white church, and the church, uh, I was teaching a certain series. I taught two or three different times for them. And they went to the pastor who had arranged this for me to be there, and they went and said, we're just so happy you let this colored boy preach. Now, now here's, here's where, if you're not humble, here's where your mind goes. That's not everybody, because you're missing the point. Because some of us don't want to believe that our grandparents may have done something like that. Because we feel like to, to speak against it is to indict the character of whomever. And what we do is, here's the problem with that. When we start going, well, they were, you know, that, that, that's just a product of their time. That's just where they were. You can't change old people. And what we're saying is, there is an age at which you are beyond being sanctified. There is an age at which you are beyond being discipled. 
So you don't really believe in real discipleship then. You can't possibly. Because you actually think that cultural milieu takes precedence over the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Oh, I can't, you can't, and it does not insert any race or people. I got people in my family that have things and views that are so messed up and so wrong. And honestly, you got to be respectful. I get that. You want to respect, but listen, Thanksgiving is coming up. How many of us are ready to engage conversations at the table when Uncle Nuck Nuck starts saying crazy stuff? And it's like, well, Nuck Nuck's seen a lot though, and he's been through a lot. And, and especially if Nuck Nuck is the, I'm gonna love his name, if Nuck Nuck is the one that's like the one that is, is still a Christian, claims to be a believer, why don't we actually engage there? Because ultimately, we don't expect people to be humble. And then we grow up and emulate the same thing. So the moment somebody says, you, you realize how incredible it would be for us to be able to go, you know what? I might be guilty of this, I might not, but I'm going to, how about we just start with, how about if you just, as a, as a, as a, as a rule, I'm just going to immediately start and assume I might be guilty here. All of us, I'm talking all of us, no matter what. If you're married, if somebody goes, hey, I'm really feeling like this, how about you just start with, I might be guilty here. You know why you don't? Because you're not humble. And, and, and I'm not saying immediately uh, artificially create guilt for yourself. What I'm saying is having a heart posture that says, I very well may be guilty here. And, I, and I'm not just giving lip service. I actually believe I may be guilty here. And I believe that I don't necessarily have to have the facts in front of me because I'm biased. And so the, whatever facts you put in front of me, I could easily be mishandling this because of my sinful condition of my head and my heart. That's what humility looks like. So when he says, take the posture of Jesus, look at the example of Jesus, think about who Jesus is here. Jesus comes completely perfect, completely innocent. See, Jesus, didn't, Jesus easily could have been like, why should I have to pay for something that I didn't do? Jesus could easily be like, it, this, it's totally unjust and unfair for you to put the sins of the world on me. I'm God. Why should I have to pay for this? And yet this is what it means to be humble and say, listen, uh, regardless of who's right or who's wrong, I want to come in and what it means to maybe even bear the weight with you. Jesus is the only one that can bear the weight for you. He's calling us to be able to bear the weight with each other. What does it mean then for us to really engage humility? Humility is the only way to ensure that we're not making our mind and our attitude our God. Only humility given by the Spirit, does that. So this means that when things come up and people bring a certain thing up, you don't, you don't immediately start doing kind of what we're prone to do. You know, you could hear, I've seen this before, you can hear something and somebody's bringing up an issue, something that legitimately God cares about, and you pivot because you don't want to do the work, so you go, but I didn't hear you talk about that though. What aboutism is a great way to show you're not humble. And actually, that's something that grieves God's heart because you never, you realize that doing this kind of work I think sometimes we feel like if we're the one that is having to do the work in this case, we feel like that in doing the work on some level, like we're lower or we're, you know, we're, we're not in the position of, of, of not necessarily authority, but the, the, the more preferred position. You know what that says, though? You don't realize that Jesus is actually in the work. Jesus exists in the work. And when you try to hide from yourself and you hide through not being humble, you're missing Jesus in the process. You actually miss him. 
And, and so going back to the example, this is what we do to people even in older generations. We just let them miss that whole aspect of what it means to be humble and what it means to be changed and what it means to be transformed. This idea that you just get to a place where you're like, well, you know, you can't teach an old dog new, new tricks. Humans can't, but the Holy Spirit does. God's Spirit's in the business of teaching old dogs new tricks. And finally, when you look through what Jesus says, or what, what Paul says here as he looks through what we're called, think, think through how he describes Jesus. He says, uh, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This, this next portion here, I think, is something that if you don't realize the context here, you can miss. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This, this reason, this humbling of self. Why does he have to highlight this piece? Because there are people arguing. Why? Because some people are trying to be on the higher side. They're trying to get the higher ground. And what he's saying is, ultimately, the only way for you to be exalted is to not want to be exalted. The only way for you to truly be exalted is to say, my, I want to care about what God cares about. What do I need to do to be able to exalt my neighbor? What do I need to do to be able to not exalt self? The, 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 the wrong thing to do is when somebody comes, this is what we'll often do. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, I think you might have been guilty of this, or hey, I think that this right here is something that needs to change, or again, on a systemic level, these issues are there. You know what I could easily do? This is what I do when I'm not humble. I just want to run you my resume to prove to you that, that I sh you should actually just listen to my opinion on this because here are the people that I know. Here are the people I've been around. Here, here are the people that actually vouched for me. I, I have somebody that told me that I'm actually not guilty of this, so you can't possibly be right. See, that's, again, I'm, I'm just trusting in the things that have exalted me. I'm more inclined to run to the things that have exalted me. I don't want to believe in the things that might say, hey, you're not nearly as far along as, as you thought. And of course, this can only happen when we're in mutually humble community. Because at the end of the day, if we're super honest, we know all these, we are aware on a deep level, some of the areas we should be, or, or hopefully the Holy Spirit makes us aware of areas where we just are not humble. Areas where we are very full of ourselves. Areas that actually need to be challenged. My question is, what do you do to run from that? Because there are going to be some here that are, they're gonna, I know it because we have conversations often. There'll be some here that'll go, all right, I got I, I to gotta figure out, okay, what it means to be humble. Where are my areas? Where are my blind spots? I need to get more people around. They'll have great conversations. Then there'll be other people that right now you're already posturing. You're already uh, positing all of the counter arguments in your mind just so that you don't have to see yourself as somebody that's not humble enough. Because ultimately what you or what I don't want to believe is I don't want to believe that I'm not as high as I thought that I was. And even if I didn't word it that way, sometimes we have this false, humble way of doing it like sometimes people, I, it's hard for me to trust this, and you shouldn't trust it for me. When people are like, I'm going to speak authoritatively on this thing, but I don't really know a lot about it. You know, I haven't, I haven't studied this much, but I can tell you this, I feel like that can't be trusted because you're actually, you're, what you're saying is, <laughs> 
My ability to communicate without knowledge, my ability to communicate in ignorance takes precedence over whatever it is that you actually know causes you pain. I trust my ignorance more than, than whatever it is you're going through. That can't be trusted either. So, so this goes across every single line. And if you right now are going, I know some people who need to hear this, you are the one that needs to hear this. Because you've missed the humble boat completely. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us has something, some place where we have trusted our own way of thinking, our own way of doing far more than what God says. And this is what's scary. What's scary, what's scary is that for Christians who say, I care about what God cares about, when another Christian comes and says, yeah, but by the way, this right here is so clear. God makes this so clear. Ultimately, what we do is we run to find a way to just defend all that stuff. No, 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 that, that can't be right. Or no, you're missing it. Or, what about this, <laughs> instead of dealing with the actual issue? So whether it's within our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our communities, what does it mean for us to actually embrace and actually truly be humble with one another? Y'all, this is the only way that we ensure that we're not making little self-worshippers of ourselves. It's the only way to be able to go. Like, if, I, if we all, what would it look like if we all were like, you know what, all the issues that are on the table... If we're going to engage this, and yes, we need to engage this in truth. So we're not saying artificially just claiming guilt. What we're saying is oh, starting with an open heart posture that says, because I understand to the degree that I can just how far sin has affected how I think, how I feel, how I act. And then if I multiply that by the seven and a half, eight billion people on the, on the planet and the hundreds of billions of people that we think could have been on this planet throughout the years, how could I not then go, hey, I, I, nothing's off the table. Nothing is off the table. Everything is then truly possible. And so I'm just going to start with that first. Like what, what, what stops us from doing that? Ultimately, our own self-worship, our own high view of ourselves. And to look at what Jesus has done and how Jesus models for us. Jesus says, I didn't actually have to be the guilty one to pay for your price. I didn't have to be the guilty one to actually stand in your place. And so now I'm asking guilty people to stand in each other's place. I'm, I died for you so that you can, uh, you can adopt a posture that on your own you never earned. I, I died in your place so that you can accept a posture. You can assume a posture of, okay, now I can start to enter into your stuff while you enter into my stuff, and I'm coming with humility. I'm not coming as one that's arrived. The only one who came that arrived died and rose again. You ain't doing that. You're coming in with just this posture of, okay, I've, I'm broken too. And I realize brokenness exists in this, in this individual thing, and I know brokenness uh, exists in this systemic thing, and so I'm just coming in with, with a humble posture right now. I don't know what I don't know. What that also means is I don't run into these things of, this is, this is one, one other thing, kind of pet peeve that I see happen. So often what we'll do is we'll, you know, if, if, if there's a thing that I said that, if somebody says, hey, you did this, and it's weird. It might sound similar to something we said before, but I see this a lot that, that if, if I said, hey, I won't do thing A, but then I do thing A, but then I'm like, yeah, but like I was really trying to do thing B, but thing A just happened. My question in that moment is, what does it look like for you to be humble there? Like what right now, if there are people even in this room that have been harmed or hurt or if you have been hurt, what does it mean to actually approach someone in humility and engage that?
The worst thing that we could do is to just walk away, privately shove it elsewhere, and cancel each other. Canceling is not anything that we see in Scripture. When the Bible says love your enemies, does it say cancel your enemies? This is not to say that we need to set boundaries, because we do. Boundaries are vitally important. There are plenty of examples in Scripture where boundaries are in place. But also at the same time, what does it mean to humbly love those that you might consider an enemy? Because again, the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing what Jesus did with us. Once his enemies are now seated at his table, if Jesus makes us enemies, or sorry, if Jesus makes those of us that were enemies into his friends, then doesn't he use us to actually love our enemies where we can actually eat at a common table again? If that's not happening, then what's happening with our, with our humility? So as, as we move forward, anytime we talk about idols, anytime we talk about what it means to love each other, anytime you see any place of disunity in this community, in your family, in your neighborhood, in this nation, you just assume somewhere along the line there's a lack of humility somewhere. And you probably should just start with, where's my lack of humility first? Honestly. Where is my lack of humility? Not in an artificial way, not in a contrived way, but in a way that says, I truly know just how deep this sin rabbit hole goes, and I'm not even aware of just how much, how much badness could even be there. I know it goes deep, but I'm just going to lead with, I likely am guilty somewhere here. If we do that, you realize what happens? We start trusting each other. We really do start trusting each other. People have, it's hard to talk about hard things, but people can talk about hard things when one, come, when one comes going, I don't want to necessarily uh, make you have to prove all the things that you feel right now. I just want to sit and listen and be able to lean into what it is that's hurting you. There's a phrase, uh, and I'll close with this, there's a phrase that I just learned um, that I didn't realize was even a thing. Uh, one phrase we do know, have you guys ever heard the phrase gaslighting? Okay, so that actually comes from an old movie in the 50s. There was a movie, I can't remember the name of it, but in this movie, there's a man who is uh, uh, basically trying to trick his wife and steal some things from the house and, and start a whole new life. So what he does is he wants to make her think she's crazy. And so this was back when you had gas-powered lamps. And so what he would do is the, the lights in the house started out at a certain intensity level. Then over time, uh, he would just lower the gas in the house a little bit at a time, and it would get lower and lower. And she would be like... Honey, the, it's, it's, it's dimming here, isn't it? It's getting dark. And he's like, no, it, it looks the same to me. And he just keeps lowering it, lowering it again. Huh? No, it looks the same. And she's going, honey, it's like half as bright as it was like last week. No, is there something wrong with you? We, we should go to a diet. I, I don't see it. I, don't, I think this is in your head right now. And he's lowering it and lowering it and lowering it to the point where he completely takes advantage and all these messed up things happen. And over time, that phrase became known as gaslighting. When somebody comes and says, hey, I mean, especially in the body of Christ, I'm here and I'm trying to share this kind of a pain or this issue. And you're like, mm, are you sure? Because I don't, I don't really see it. Are you sure it's not just in your head? That's not what humility looks like. The other uh, phrase that's become popular now, again, it's just a word that describes something that's always been the case. You guys ever heard of a phrase called sea lioning? All right, this is going to be fun. So sea lining, look it up. Sea lining is this. It came from a comic strip. Uh, in the comic strip, you've got two people who are kind of walk, going by carriage, and immediately in the, uh, one guy just goes, you know what I can't stand? I can't stand sea lions. 
And then a sea lion happens to just pop up while they're having breakfast and going, hey, I overheard that you said you don't like sea lions. Can you give me a bunch of uh, facts why you don't like them, please? And they're like, listen, we're just having a conversation. I, I, I don't have to explain. And he's constantly, no, tell me why. What, what, what's the deal? Like, what, what, why can't you just get to this place? And they just continually keep badgering them with, no, I mean, your logic doesn't make sense. Can you show me another example why? I don't, I don't know why you're saying this. And they keep getting them to a point where they're badgering them, questioning them. At one point in the comic strip, the sea lion is in their bed going, no, I still have questions. They're like, you're in my house, dude. Why are you badgering me and making me have to defend to you why I feel a certain thing, right? And ultimately, when people are talking, the psychologists kind of refer to this as well. Sea lining is this, is this approach that people may have to say, um, I don't actually, I'm not even interested in the real facts of what you're having to say. I just want to keep you going so that I can get you intellectually drained to the point where you'll respond emotionally so then I can go, see, you're the one that's got the problem. You're the one that's got the issue. Because look at just how emotional you are right now. See, none of that is actually humble. That's not how humility looks. If we're going to mourn with those who mourn, if we're going to rejoice with those who rejoice, then we just lean into that. I don't even have to figure, I don't have to start with verifying whether or not you should be mourning. I just start with, let me lean in. Let me lean in. And then if, if I might be responsible for the mourning, let me lean in. This is the way that uh, the perfect God of the world did with us. And he had nothing to do with our pain, nothing to do with our suffering. And yet he came in and said, I'm going to come, I'm going to live, I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to show ultimate humility that's impossible for you to show. And then I'm going to be the one that empowers you to show this kind of humility to one another. This is what he's called us to. So let's be that. Let's, let's, let's get to a place where I pray that maybe we, may we be a church that is so uh, jealous for that kind of glory to say, I, I want to be in a place where people are going, the moment pain comes in, I want to lean in. Where could, where could I be wrong here? Where, could I, where might I be wrong here? I even assume there's something in me here that's contributing on some level. And I pray that God would break us in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, is so, it's so common to approach you and uh, it's common even in our culture to look to you as the one that exclusively exalts us. And so God, it feels weird to pray, God, I pray that you would actually lower us, that you would spiritually impress upon our hearts in such a way that we would lower uh, our sense of self, that we would lower our high view of ourselves that we would lower uh, the ways that we value our mind, the ways that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act. God, I pray that we would not make an idol out of authenticity, that we would not make an idol of what it means to, to be ourselves. God, I pray that we would engage that. Pray that we would not cast that aside, but that it would be properly ordered. Father, we don't need more of ourselves. God, we need more of you. God, if we're honest and we look at all the ways that our relationships are not what they ought to be, God, we, if, it, it, we'd be remiss to overlook all the ways that we, our refusal, our inability to see ourselves as uh, full of conceit or selfish ambition or some way that we're exalting ourselves. God, we don't see it or we choose not to see it, whatever the case. God, will you break that now? I'm praying that you would lower us, that you would humble us, because it's in that that you say that we are exalted. God, I pray that you would make us 
Make this true in our families. Make this true in our friendships. Make this true in this church. Make this true in our city. Make this true in our nation. God, let us be known by not how highly we can exalt, how much we can win, how logical our arguments. Let us be known by how broken, how servant-hearted, how lowly we press ourselves so that we can exalt the needs and the cares of others. And God, let this be done for your glory, not ours. God, will you do this now for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. As we get to the table, we're coming to this table and we're saying, we're proclaiming this as a, as a family, as a, as a family of believers, this common unity, this common union that we claim to have together. And so before we even do this, this is a time that we need to spend examining and saying, Lord, where, if anywhere, either individually in my relationship to you, have I exalted the way that I think, the things that I, that I focus on, the things that I feel, have I exalted that above you? Lord, will you show me right now? Lord, will you break me right now? And then Lord, if there's any place where I've exalted myself above my brother or my sister, there's a way in which I've just completely missed or overlooked the pain that may have been caused overlooked my role, however small, however large. God, will you break that too? You know, when, when Paul says that we're supposed to examine ourselves uh, before taking this unworthily, this actually had to do with real conflict that was happening in the Corinthian church. Folks that were actually overlooking their brother or their sister and abusing the table and not caring how it affected their brothers or their sisters. And so ultimately what he's saying is, before you come, ensure A, that your relationship with God is right here, which doesn't mean my relationship has been perfect. It means I'm broken and I have a heart of repentance over that. And, not or, and, Lord, I'm broken over all the ways that I've actually overlooked or not seen my neighbor all the ways that I have contributed to disunity, even if I've been the offended one, ways that I still may have contributed to disunity, maybe then the after effects, how I may have contributed. Paul says, examine yourselves before you come. We don't wanna come and take this unworthily. What does it mean to be worthy of this? It ultimately says, I'm coming and I'm only worthy because of the work that the perfect one has done for me already. That's it, that's all that makes me worthy. I'm not worthy on my own because I see the effects of sin and how it's infected me in so many different ways. But the one that died in my place, the one that came to redeem me, the one that came to rescue me, to save me, he's still doing that work right now. So every place that I'm broken, every place that I acknowledge, yes, I'm broken and I'm heavy hearted, but I also have an incredible heart of gladness and joy because the one who started this work in me is still finishing me. And so I come broken, I come guilty, but I come assured that I'm pardoned. I come assured that he will look at me and say, not guilty. I come assured that I won't have to bear the weight of this sin, the shame of this sin. And guess what? It's only then that I'm now free to repent and I'm free to turn and I'm free to move into a place of real repentance. This is true for you. And this is your table. If it's not, and you're just kind of like, you know, I, I don't know about this. I'm still trying to figure out some things. Maybe, hey, the way that I think, I still am not sure that I'm ready to submit that to the way you're telling me God thinks. This is not about who's in the club or not. We say this every time. This is not about that. 
This is about Jesus wanting to meet you exactly where you are. The thing I love about Christianity is it goes beyond just religious ritual. He genuinely, God genuinely cares about relationship. He genuinely cares about your relationship to him and he genuinely cares about a relationship to each other. So much so that we have something like this every Sunday to stop and examine. And it's not because he he, it's not because we know that we're going to keep this every time. We do this every week because we need to be reminded because every week we'll fall into these different patterns. We'll fall into these different ways of self-worship. But if this is not something that's true right now, let this time pass. And, and, and I pray that even now you would pray and go, Lord, I, if you're there, if this is true, there's a part of me that desperately wants this and I wanted to want this to be true, then will you impress this upon my heart? And we pray that maybe this would be the first time that you can come and commune as one that has been redeemed by the one that has redeemed us. As the volunteers come, uh, we want to remind you that here at ICON, we do communion by the process of intinction. So what that means is you starting in the back, you walk down the middle aisle, and if you're on the sides, you can kind of fill in uh, through the sides here. Come and take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. Once in a while, I try to remind us that when we come and take this bread, don't just take a little flaky piece. So this, we're gonna do humility checks. Here's the humility check. Come and get a piece that you think is commensurate with your sin level. There we go. We might need a few more lows, Dave, so get them ready. <laughs> but when we come, this is what we wanted. We're coming to remember, we're coming to rejoice, and we're coming to mourn our sin, but we realize that our God is good and he loves us and he's faithful and just to forgive us. So if this is true for you, if this is something you're clinging to, it, you, you, may, you may even have doubts and you may be struggling and you're going, listen, with everything that I'm going through right now, this is the only thing I'm holding on to right now. Then come, be encouraged, taste and see, be reminded, be convinced that our God, our Savior, is indeed good. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he came and gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, my body that was given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sin. Come and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We're proclaiming every Sunday that ultimately the perfect one that died for me is the only one that sets me free. The fact that he has come back, the fact that he has resurrected proves that he has indeed the only power in the universe to set me free, to free my mind, to free my heart, and to change me and remake me, recreate me to look like him. So if this is where you are and your hope is, then come. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's eat together.